Friends, I cannot tell you how excited I am for the conversation that's about to take place. We're putting this space into Space Castle with NASA Flight Surgeon and Program Medical Officer Dr. James Paterini. He's coming to us live from NASA. We're going to talk about all kinds of cool things like going back to the moon and preparing astronauts for medical emergencies and, and the fact that excitement for space exploration is at a height we haven't seen in decades. This is all coming up right now on Space Castle. Welcome back to Space Castle. It's your clubhouse for all things nerdy. My name is DT, and friends, it doesn't get much more nerdy or awesome than this week's episode, because I am joined by NASA flight surgeon, Dr. James Paterini, one of my favorite people. James, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to hang out with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, this is uh, super fun for me. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, anytime we get to talk about space um, in the middle of a workday, it's pretty fun. Totally, man. If you wouldn't mind, what is your full title? with NASA. Yeah, you got it. So I'm a, an operational flight surgeon. So I'm a physician who takes care of astronauts. And, and the operational means um, part of active mission. So uh, crew members who are either in training to or about to fly or are currently in space or have just returned from space. And then um, what I spend most of my time doing for the last couple of years is I'm the program medical officer, which means you can think of it like the medical lead for uh, human lander system development. Um, and what that means these days is for Artemis three, you know, we're going back to the moon. Um, we have a lander that's on contract to be built uh, for that mission. And for Artemis III, the first human landing on the moon since Apollo, um, that is SpaceX Starship. So the big Buck Rogers looking thing. Um, as that's in development, got a bunch of teams both here at Johnson Space Center and at Marshall Space Flight Center, really all over NASA working hand in hand with SpaceX to make sure that that vehicle uh, is built and ready to fly and uh, built to the requirements that we know uh, we need to keep the crew safe. And so on the medical side, that's my role, is making sure that that uh, development is on track and working with my counterparts at SpaceX to see that thing come together. Awesome, man. So for people who aren't completely familiar with what you do, are you more or less like the, the personal physician for the people who go up on missions? I will say that the way I usually describe the job um, of an operational flight surgeon, leaving, leaving the Artemis kind of piece of this aside for a second, is uh, everyone's familiar with sports teams. There's always like a team physician or a team of physicians that take care of a sports team. Um, that's probably the best way to look at it. We've got a cadre here of flight surgeons. We're actually getting kind of high in numbers these days. I think we're around 40 now. No kidding. It's a four with a zero after it. Oh, wow. Yeah, because there's that many different jobs to do under that banner. But um, but yeah, the way to think of it is that we've got uh, the astronaut corps. Um, all the astronauts, uh, at least the U.S. astronauts, live here in Houston. And um, we are kind of the team physicians for that team. And so the way it'll usually go, like when I came on in this job, you know, International Space Station support is kind of the main thing that uh, that we're here to do. And so the way it'll usually go is uh, we'll assign two doctors to a given mission about a year out, uh, so a year before they launch. And um, there's a lot of training, you can imagine. Oh, yeah. Right now, we're usually flying six-month missions on station. And so during that six months, it's, it's very regimented. We know exactly the EVAs they're going to do, the specific tasks they're going to have to do on those EVAs. None of this stuff is kind of like pulled out of the hat at the last minute. Yeah. And so we also know the... Uh, you know, any research projects that they're going to be working on, the team of scientists that all pull that stuff together, they know in advance, okay, if our, you know, package is flying in this part of 2023, they know, you know, years in advance, the crew that are going to actually be up there during that time. And so on the ground, part of what the crew's also doing is training to, so that when they get up there, 
they've done this before. They know exactly what they're doing and they just kind of go to work. And the main part that's different is now they're doing it in microgravity, right? Right. And so on the surgeon side, the way it'll go is we'll get signed about a year before they fly. We'll do a bunch of medical training and certification uh, to make sure that, you know, if we're going to send them away for six months, we want to make sure they're in tip top shape before they go, um, that there's nothing we're going to find that, oh my gosh, if it goes wrong in space, then that's a little harder to deal with than uh, I can't just like bring him to the hospital and, and do what needs to be done, right? Yeah. So you spend that time kind of getting them ready to fly. Um, then if you're one of those two doctors that's assigned to that particular mission, you actually go into quarantine with the crew. Um, we do about a two-week quarantine, um, which we've been doing since the Apollo days. Obviously, during COVID, that got a lot more, uh, I think, visibility um, because we were, if you guys remember, we started uh, the return to U.S. launches. We had actually been launching out of Kazakhstan for a long time. Yeah. Since the retirement of shuttle. And uh, the first return to kind of U.S. soil launch was uh, in 2020. So here, here we are in the midst of COVID. And um, all of a sudden, uh, you know, these things we've been doing forever, um, but haven't had to do here in the U.S. for a while. All of a sudden, all that's, you know, ramped back up. And so making sure you go into quarantine with your crew, you make sure that everyone's wearing their masks and is taking hygiene really seriously. You keep them away from everyone that you can. And then you are there really at the triage site in case anything goes wrong with the launch for that launch. And then once they're in space, the surgeons relocate to mission control. Um, if you look at the team in Mission Control, one of those seats um, is, a, is a physician. And so they're there during the day. And then, um, you know, so you're basically doing telemedicine support uh, to the crew. You've got kind of a standing office visit, you could think of it as, uh, every week with your crew. And then in the meantime, you're there while they're doing, you know, EVAs, while they're working on, you know, anything uh, that uh, could uh, lead to injury uh, or illness. Yeah. Crew have to work out, for example, like two hours a day, uh, which is a... Uh, um, a lot. So two hours a day, six days a week. And that's just to maintain kind of uh, bone and muscle mass because of uh, what microgravity does to you. Yeah. So you do that and then uh, you go collect your crew when it's time for them to come home. So when they're coming home, you go for dragon. Obviously we do uh, recoveries uh, on the water. And so there's always going to be two surgeons on that recovery ship. In addition to our medical colleagues from SpaceX who are there to do the initial kind of extraction from the capsule. Yeah, I mean, I've seen photos of you at landing sites, like out there, like carrying the astronauts into the like the triage tent and whatnot to like check them out, make sure it's cool. It's super rad, man. Soyuz landings, as I said, we were flying Soyuz for a very long time after shuttle retired, and um, going to Kazakhstan to collect, you know, your uh, crew member from a Soyuz capsule is a, is a unique life experience. I'll say that. I bet, man. Yeah. Getting to Kazakhstan was not something I thought I was going to do when I when I was in my early twenties. So. Uh, you kind of touched on what was going to be my next question, and I'm a little bit proud of myself for doing my due diligence and having like the correct questions ready for you. Uh, I was going to ask, you know, hopefully there never would be, but if there was a situation where there was a medical emergency, you talked before about how you do quarantine yourself with the crew before they go up. Are you able to do telemedicine with the crew, and are they trained up to the point where they can follow your instructions and administer aid if necessary? And while you're quarantined, do you run through like emergency drills and like a standard procedure for broken bones or somebody catches the flu or cuts or bruises, stuff like that? Yeah, you got an awesome question. Um, so by the time we're in quarantine, I'll say all that training better be done. Because <laughs> we're like, <laughs> we're about to stick these guys. All we want them to do in quarantine is for the love of God, don't get hurt. <laughs> yeah. Don't get sick because we don't want to move this launch, right? So uh, you're really trying to kind of uh, do any last minute, you spend a lot of time kind of in a very regimented kind of, we're going to talk about the weather projections, we're going to talk about our slip plans, we're going to talk about our sleep schedule, and, uh, and we're going to make sure for the love of all that is holy, you don't get sick and you don't get hurt. That's really what's going on in quarantine. There's always some last minute training, but on the medical side, that, that stuff is generally done. 
What we do for ISS, and it's, it's a great question because right now, obviously on the Artemis side, what we're doing is we're looking at, we've gotten very comfortable. We've been flying ISS for over 20 years with a certain way of doing things. And that's just not us in medical. I think every discipline here at NASA is doing the same kind of thing where you're looking at what you've gotten comfortable with in low Earth orbit, where, you know, they're just, you know, 250 miles overhead. They're not that far away, really. Right. You can talk to them in real time. There's really no comm delays. Uh, we sometimes have what we call LOSs, so loss of signals, where just the spacing of the ground stations and the satellites that we use to communicate with the crew. Um, sometimes you'll get like 10 minutes of blackout, 20 minutes of blackout, never much more than that. All that, right, is going to be a bit different when we go back to the moon. So to your question on how we do medical training and support for ISS operations, and I'll just talk to ISS for a second. Mm-hmm. You know, you think of the size of ISS. So it's a, it's a basically a football field, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, we've got a lot of capability up there. And so what we've got is we've got nine different medical kits. Um, they range from things like over-the-counter medications to some um, more like, hey, these are there, they're pre-staged but you'd never take them unless a doctor was specifically telling you exactly how to take them and what dose. We've got some basic diagnostic equipment that everyone is kind of like basically trained in. And then we've got some more robust stuff like ultrasound, for example. We've got a really nice ultrasound rig up there where the crew has kind of basic training. Okay. I will say that uh, clearly our astronaut corps is not a one-size-fits-all group of skills, right? So we've got military test pilots, and we've got terrestrial physicians, and we've got some people who are both of those things. And we've got, you know, PhD researchers who are, you know, world experts in volcanology or other types of geology or virology, right? All those people are going to bring some different kind of baseline competence to, okay, I'm going to space, you're going to train me on what I need to know, right? Right. Our approach for ISS is we will always train up um, out of any like group of three or four, There'll be a basic level of uh, medical training and competence where everyone gets uh, familiarization with the contents of those kits. They get a familiarization and a demo where we like walk them through and they have to demonstrate us competence with things like blood draws, things like injections, basic kind of think like a dexterous skills, right? Yeah, yeah. And then we'll take uh, the people that we designate as the, uh, as the crew medical officers and they'll get trained a little deeper. We also do mega code training. So like, you know, God forbid we were to have a cardiovascular event of some kind on station, right? How to do compressions in microgravity, how to get a read on a defibrillator, how to, you know, respond to that autonomously without the ground telling you what to do, um, at least long enough for a surgeon to get on the line and start talking you through the next steps so that they aren't in a posture where they're waiting for us to tell them what to do. They can always start and then there was a calm failure or something like that, and we couldn't be there to kind of pick up the baton from them, they would be able to kind of do it end to end if they needed to. But we do have that kind of two-tier kind of approach to training where we'll have the crew medical officers who know a bit more, not quite uh, EMT basic level, but, but you know, I think that's probably uh, in, the, in the ballpark at least. And then every once in a while, right, we'll fly physician astronauts who come with all of their, you know, background training. And so in that case, we do have, you know, some expanded tools and expanded procedures where when we're lucky enough to have someone like that up there, we go in with the knowledge that they could take it a lot farther if they had to. Just an, a random question. How would you perform microcompressions in a low gravity environment? Would you have to like brace the, the patient up against something and then perform it or? Yeah, it's a... Uh, basically, yeah. <laughs> I think you can find uh, some videos probably from at least when we were um, looking at this in shuttle. Um, the short answer is like, 
I think it's a pretty unlikely scenario um, just because of how we screen our astronauts. Um, our cardiovascular risk profile is very different than it was like in the Apollo days, for example. But the short answer is if you ever did, like let's say someone got electrocuted, right? Mm -hmm. And oh my gosh, they're, they're unresponsive. What would you do? We have uh, something called the CMRS. It's, it's a, basically a backboard that you have to then have straps to restrain the crew to because putting a backboard in microgravity isn't going to do much if they're bouncing back and forth on it, right? Yeah. So we have restraint straps that keeps them kind of um, close to the board so that when you're doing compressions, they aren't bouncing up and down. And then and as the responder, you'd have to do one of two things. You either have to get into a posture kind of above them between the, what you could think of as the ceiling. There's no up and down in space, but you get it between the ceiling and the, and the crew members so that you can actually use your legs pushing off the ceiling. Some folks have experimented with that. The other thing you could do is strap yourself kind of like a waistband to the backboard so that you're not flying away when you're leaning over the crew. Yeah, that makes sense. It is, you know, it's a great example of how very simple things that we're just take for granted here on, on the ground get a lot more complicated when you're talking about how do I do this basic thing in microgravity? I'll tell you an another simple one that I think is, is foremost on our mind as we think about this exploration kind of posture is, uh, is how you give fluids if you needed to give fluids to somebody. Right. Yeah. If you go to the hospital for any reason, any reason almost, um, you're going to get some kind of IV fluids, right? We're going to stick a needle in your arm. Yeah. A drip doesn't necessarily work in zero G. Yeah. <laughs> right. So the, so the thing is, is like, okay, so I'm going to stick a needle in your arm. We're going to get the tube. I'm going to get the IV bag. And here on earth, it's get tongue and it drips, right? And it seems a simple thing to say, well, I'm microgravity fine. So maybe I need to use like a pressure bag, right? So I can put some pressure and then that, that'll be the gradient, right? But the problem is all those IV bags have air in them. Here in, on earth, the air separates out. And so you'll end up with this nice little air bubble at the top and the fluid at the bottom and no problem. You're not gonna get any air in the line. But in space, if you look at one of those IV bags, the air is just these bubbles all over the bloody place and there's no way to really separate them out. What you could try doing is like centrifuging yourself, right? To see maybe I can get all of them to collect on one side, right? But really what you have to do is you have to fly filters to filter out those air bubbles. So you'll put the filter in line, you'll use the pressure bag to run it. But now you're looking at, you know, the rates you can get in terms of like rapid infusion of fluids, very different if you're having to deal with those kinds of filters than you would be able to get here on earth. So again, something that's bread and butter on the ground that is, is, is a, takes a little more thought. Is there still a lot of improvisation even now when it comes to administering aid and medical care up there? Or is pretty much every contingency kind of thought out at this point? And is there like a standard like series of, of steps to take care of? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you had to like, like Apollo 13 style, like figure out how to do something and figure out how to take care of somebody while they were up there? That's a couple of good questions and I'll answer them uh, kind of stepwise. Sure. The way we, and I'll, I'll say we, I think the way NASA in general, not just NASA medical, um, tends to think through things is... To me, it's, it's exactly what you'd want after having 50 years to think about this and deal with, and obviously in, in our history, you know, some pretty horrendous losses of life, right? Yeah. So what we do is we say, look, there are known contingency events, right? Things that we've either seen in the past on other vehicles or that we know as we were building this vehicle is like a concern. Every single vehicle can spring a leak, whether you get an MMOD strike or some manufacturing defect, or you have a hatch that gets you know, fod on the, on the seal or something like that. If you're in space, you can start leaking air, right? And so having a pre-planned algorithmic depressed response that, hey, if we spring a leak, this is what the crew is going to do. It'll be a memorized response. The ground team is the same. We're all spring-loaded to spring into that. And there's no improvisation there at all. It is a, we have gamed this on the ground. 
every which way. We know exactly what we're going to do and it's all written down, right? And so for depress, fire, toxic release events, like those types of things, that's really how it is. On the medical side, similarly, if you have like an incapacitated crew member, that kind of general response to what do we do if someone is just unresponsive is something that is is very well, you know, pre-gamed, pre-planned, and we've all kind of gamed it out. Then what you have is you have, you know, the things that, you know, we don't have the bandwidth on the ground to train the crew deeply on, but the medical team is thought through, right? So we know exactly what we're going to do for a range of like inhalation injuries, musculoskeletal injuries, those types of things. But the crew doesn't necessarily get deeply trained in all that. It's in a medical checklist. We can direct them to the procedure. We can talk them through the procedure. But the odds of that occurring on their six months is pretty darn low. So we're not going to eat up their time on the ground, making sure that 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 doesn't need to be memorized, right? Yeah, yeah. With that said, though, that's the posture for ISS. You can see how if you start introducing a little bit of calm delay, you know, even if it's like four to eight seconds, right? Hey, I could get you home in 24 hours if I really had to. If all of a sudden it's five to 10 days away from home, right? Um, all of a sudden that balance between, hey, like what's sufficient to deeply train you to versus, oh, I'll just talk you through it in game time if I had to. I think that the kind of balance point starts moving, right? It becomes clear you need to start giving the crew more tools and you need to make sure they're more autonomous and have the ability to be more autonomous than we've been able to get very comfortable with here in low earth orbit. So if I remember correctly, you actually are a practitioner of preventative medicine. And I was curious, like, was becoming a flight surgeon or program medical officer at NASA the end goal? Or did you want to become a doctor and did the opportunity at NASA present itself later? Like, what was your, what was your sort of track to achieve what you've achieved? Yeah, great question. So my background, I'm board certified in both internal medicine and aerospace medicine. Internal medicine is under the board of internal medicine, right? And um, aerospace medicine is a subspecialty under uh, the American Board of Preventive Medicine. So I do both internal and preventive. Um, and I think what you'll find, one of the things I love about our field, and it's an interesting time because there's, there's new programs kind of coming online that are they're going to, I think, change the, the way we look at aerospace medicine a little bit uh, long term. But um, one of the things I like is that aerospace medicine, as it stands today, is a standalone residency or fellowship. You can go to Mayo Clinic and you can do a fellowship or you can go to the University of Texas Medical Branch and do a standalone two-year residency. What I like about that is when you look at the cadre of doctors that are here at NASA, right, they are not a monolith. Like, So I'm an internal medicine physician who then did aerospace medicine. Um, I work with um, a handful of people who are also internists. I also work with uh, about a I'd say about 30, 35 or 40% of the uh, physicians here are emergency medicine physicians who then did aerospace medicine. We've also got folks who are boarded in uh, hyperbarics. We've got uh, a neurologist on our team. It's a nice kind of potpourri of um, you know, different specialties that are kind of all bringing their own lens to the space medicine environment and then are informing how they approach the job. For me, I had decided I wanted to work for NASA very early on, but I didn't quite know how to get there. Yeah. I then, after that, decided I wanted to be a physician um, when I was, you know, about 18 or 20. So that was, oh, I guess so much for working at NASA because to my mind, I I did not know that uh, NASA employed physicians. So given that, I I was kind of committed to just saying, oh, or or resigned maybe is the right word, to saying, hey, I'll be a fan of uh, human spaceflight from afar. Um, and I was halfway through medical school when you really do need to start kind of deciding what kind of a specialist you want to be. When um, uh, my now wife um, actually raised 
you know, as we were looking through, most of us were in trade, like maybe I'll be internal medicine, maybe I'll be emergency medicine, somewhere in there. And she said, you know, there's this thing called aerospace medicine. That sounds like it's really up your alley. And uh, it was not something that had been on my radar. So after digging into it, it seemed a little too good to be true. Um, <laughs> I came down here to, uh, to Houston to um, do a rotation with the uh, University of Texas Medical Branch and NASA and, uh, and just immediately fell in love. It's like if there was ever a, a job that felt like it was kind of bespoke crafted for, you know, something that you're passionate about, you know, medicine and human space flight seemed to sure be it for me. So that was kind of a done deal. And then it was singular focus from then to, to come on down here and, uh, and end up working for these guys. So deciding on a specialty means you're, you know, applying to places, right? So um, I uh, applied down to a residency program at the University of Texas Medical Branch. What that had the benefit of doing is, is uh, kind of potentially shaving a year off. University of Texas allows you to do internal medicine and aerospace medicine as a kind of combined uh, package over four years. So I came down to Houston and uh, thankfully my wife <laughs> decided uh, that we were not married at the time, but uh, she uh, also liked this area, applied to a number of programs in the area and she's way smarter than me. So she got in wherever she wanted. And so that worked out great and uh, came down here, then spent the next really five years. It was four years. And then I stayed as a chief resident of internal medicine for a year. So I spent five years down in Galveston, Texas, uh, with that University of Texas Medical Branch program, doing both of those specialties. And then uh, after that, in 2015, um, was uh, fortunate enough to get hired by NASA. And once I came here, I spent, uh, I would say, the first two and a half years on the job at NASA. I uh, supported ISS operations. I spent some time in Russia because we, we actually, I mentioned the team physician kind of dynamic. We uh, tend to send uh, U.S. physicians along with the crew that train over there. So any crews flying on Soyuz, they obviously have to spend a fair bit of time in Russia training on that vehicle with their crew members. So what we do is we basically send a physician along who's going to live there for a couple months at a time. Um, and we space it out around the year so that uh, pretty much at any time other than the holidays, you'll find you've got uh, U.S. crew members there training and you've also got a U.S. physician there um, supporting them. Nice, man. So you've been a flight surgeon for... What, four and a half, almost five years now, I think? Yeah, longer. So yeah, since 15. So, Well, I'm curious, like, is every launch that you're a part of and you're on com for, is it somewhat routine at this point? Like, is it like another day at the office or is it always big and exciting and, and like super crazy and awesome? Any launch or landing day is just as edge of your seat as the very first one you support. Um, and I think that's the case for everybody, not just not just us, but um, but that's certainly how it's been for me. Um, and I think even guys who've been here on the job for 25 years will tell you the same thing. So I was not fortunate enough to come in when, uh, when shuttle was flying routinely, right? So that was, that was before my time. But um, you talk to the guys who supported shuttle and they're like, every single one, man, every single one, you're just edge of your seat. When you see, so like I mentioned, we started flying Dragon in 2020. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at that you know, video of uh, Hawthorne, the SpaceX mission control, you know, one of those front seats is is the NASA physician. And so if you look at us, you know, whenever there's a launch, there's a NASA physician in that chair. And if you watch their body language, sometimes it's me, sometimes it's other <laughs> colleagues of mine. Um, but if you watch their body language, um, no one's relaxed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But when it's, you know, people are, uh, you know, frosty, let's put it that way. These are wonderful machines. We've got a lot of confidence in them for a lot of good reason, but it's still rockets, man. If it's any consolation, like I've watched you on a number of live streams at this point, both with our circle of friends and coworkers or whatnot, and you do always look cool as a cucumber. Let me just say that. Well, that's great that that is how it looks. <laughs> I think everyone, I will say that I think there's a, um, just like any, any 
you know, I'm a, I'm a pilot. So I think that's a good, you know, analogy is like anything that takes all of your attention, right? Whether it's any highly technical task that takes all of your attention really does leave no brain space for anxiety or worry or, or any, any extraneous kind of thoughts. Right. Yeah. And so I think there is a wonderful kind of focusing that happens to everyone who's in the mission control room. If you're in a mission control room, you are not distracted with other things. And if you are, then you should not be in that room. Nice. Yeah. I actually had a question for you from one of our listeners. It's a good friend of mine, Chrissy, who's been a good friend of the podcast for a while now. And she was actually curious if being in such a high profile position and so high stress being involved with NASA and being a part of national broadcast while you're doing your job, if there's ever any instances of like almost like imposter syndrome or anxiety or like performance anxiety. And I guess you just answered it that it's so regimented and so exciting that you really don't have any time for those thoughts. You're just, you're just going through the motions and you're keyed in. It's such a good question though. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little more on that. Sure. Here's been my experience. I think that everyone, as you, as you get into like a more specialized, more specialized and, and more, we, we here at NASA, if, you're, if you really know your stuff, right? If you truly become an expert, call them SMEs, so subject matter experts, SMEs or SMEs, right? I think as people become subject matter experts, that imposter syndrome is something that you're going to find it way more often among the people who truly do know their stuff, right? <laughs> than the folks yeah. who are, you know, just slightly like, oh yeah, no, I know what I'm talking about, right? So I will say that in the moment, there's no space for any of that. And that never creeps in ever. Nice. Um, at least in my experience, when it's actually game day, when you're in T minus five minutes and you're counting down, there's none of that anywhere. I think it's in the months before and in the months after um, when you're prepping for something and you're really trying to run down to have I really thought of everything? Have I really thought of every different which way? I think that's when that little sense of like, hey, man, you look around and especially with a with an institution like NASA. Um, and I think SpaceX is, is I think of them in kind of in the same breath as that, because when you're doing something like putting people in space, it's impossible to be in this business and not immediately think of all the names from NASA history, the, the, the people who are larger than life. Sure. Yeah. When we went to the moon the last time, these were the people in the room making these decisions, right? And there is a little bit of a surreal kind of thing sometimes when, you know, now for Artemis, but I'll say that before that, during um, Dragon development, where sometimes you're you're writing flight rules or you're writing emergency procedures and you're really trying to make a risk trade and you're, and you're you know, talking with my case, it would be you're sitting at a table and there's mission directors and flight directors and environmental control system engineers, and you're really just making sausage and trying to f decide what the right thing to do is for the crew. And every once in a while you do get, or at least I, I'll say my experience was, you get this feeling of like, hey, there's no one to like turn around and ask. There's no like <laughs> someone who knows better. Right, right. It really is going to be like, oh, the six of us in this room are going to like make a recommendation and there's kind of no one else to go turn to and say, well, they'll gut check us. So they'll, they'll, you know, they'll tell us if we're wrong. It, it is kind of at the end of the day, the flight director says, yep, no, I agree. This is the right thing to do. And then that's what you're going to go fly with. And there is a responsibility that comes along with that, that um, I think every single person takes on, on all these teams takes incredibly seriously. Um, I think not so much imposter syndrome, but just that gravity of the responsibility it, uh, makes itself known, right? Sure. <laughs> where you're like, oh, there's, there's no one else. It's really us. And we're really going to go do this. And if we're wrong, then there could be real consequences with that. And I think that's a good thing if you're thinking of the consequences. And it's, it's a good thing if you feel the weight of that responsibility. When it's now T minus five minutes, though, 
there's no room for any of that. So there's no like elevated heart rate or like sweaty palms. You're just, you're keyed in, you're locked in, like you're ready to roll. Like this is your job. That's awesome. I think the sweaty palms and the, and the elevated heart rate is like the, the, the hours before. And then the closer you get, that starts to drop off and you really do get kind of into the zone where you're just like, okay, now you just know what you have to do. Yeah. Like I said, I've seen you on many live streams at this point, interviews and whatnot. You always seem cool as a cucumber. And it's funny, like I, I've seen you on many live streams, like at work or with friends and whatnot. And uh, I'm always like, hey, there's, there's my friend, James. He's like right front and center. He's the one wearing the tie and whatnot. And they're like, how do you know somebody at NASA? And I'm like, dude, I'm a freaking mid-level graphic designer with my own weekly podcast. Like I'm the cool one here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> And that's what I tell everyone too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you for lying to me, my friend. <laughs> So there's been such a huge resurgence in excitement for space exploration and, and space travel and whatnot. We've had obviously all the SpaceX and NASA co-launches. There's been all the hype with the ISS. Uh, we had the recent successful launch and calibration of the James Webb Telescope. What does that mean for everybody at NASA and maybe even you specifically to have the general public be so excited about space travel and space exploration in a way that I feel like we haven't been generally excited in for maybe decades. Like it's just massive and super cool and everybody's all about it now. Is there like a certain higher level or different level of buzz at NASA these days? And like, what does that mean for you guys? First off, it is not just perception that is reality. Like I said, I came on in 15 and it sure felt to me like between 15 and 2020. And then now, just in the last two years, the public engagement, the, the real feeling of urgency, which is not something that I think government institutions in general have, right? These are things that are large, they're just large machines, right? And government in general tends to move kind of slowly and deliberately, hopefully. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. We'll leave politics aside, but I will say <laughs> that... Um, <laughs> that's a whole other podcast but i will say that um i've got i've got my kind of feeling here from and i've talked to guys who've been here like i said 25 years and i say hey man it really feels like we're we are on the gas and like people are working not for the paycheck people are working because they're like we're gonna go back to the moon and we're really jazzed about it yeah man that feeling which started, I say it predates Artemis because I'll tell you that as Dragon got closer and closer to flying and to a lesser extent CST, we still got to get Boeing off the ground here um, with crew. But as Dragon got closer and closer to flying, there was also this, this start of, I think that, that sense of like, hey, this is new. Like this is not something that people have seen before. And we can talk, you know, hey, we, we launched shuttle for a long time, but the manner in which we're launching crew now um, and what that does in terms of possibilities. Every time you see, you know, a first stage, you know, Falcon 9 recovery, I think everyone, the first time they saw Falcon 9 recover and land safely, was like, that's that's new. We have not seen that before. Yeah. And credit where credit's due to SpaceX for, for making that a reality, right? But I think what that is, is like with any new technology or new capability, it really does force a reevaluation of what's possible. And I think the timing could not be better for a return to the moon in a sustainable way. In a way, when I say sustainable, um, no, ecological sustainability is over here. We can talk about what rockets <laughs> right. do to the environment all day. Um, but truly, but truly, um, in a way that's like, no, 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 no. You look at what Apollo was able to accomplish when it was the only thing that NASA did at the time, right? And now you look at what NASA does, right? From our deep space probes to our robotics, to James Webb, to everything else that's got nothing to do with human spaceflight, 
oh yeah, and then within human spaceflight, we've got station and we've got commercial crew in low earth orbit and we've got commercial entities that were you know helping out do their own or low earth orbit stuff having nothing to do with iss oh and then we've got artemis and we're going back to the moon it's a dramatic difference and the amount of stuff that's going on that's pushing the envelope that's new that's happening quickly you know it certainly feels to me like everyone's like in go mode and that's kind of across the industry and to folks who've been here for, you know, 25 years plus I've asked them, I'm like, is this just me or is it, is this real? Is it really this different? And they're like, Oh no, no, no. It's never been like this. It's never been like this at NASA during their careers. It has never felt like this. And that's a cool thing. It's a good, it's a good thing to, to feel like you're a part of something that has that sense of urgency. Right. I think the second piece that you asked about is, is what does it feel like to, to have you know the public along for the ride, right? To really do feel like we've got some public engagement and the public kind of behind us when it comes to these kinds of endeavors. I, I always wish it would be more, right? I always think I'm like, what could be more important? What could be cooler than making sure that humans get off of Earth, right? That's that's my lens. I know that's not everyone's lens. I will say that well, as as much as I, I want to bring more people along and have it be a truly across the board thing. I will say that my glass half full view of it is that when literally everything is contentious and literally everything is or can be a source of division, at least in the United States right now, seeing the Artemis program start under the prior administration, be continued into this administration and have pretty largely and certainly you know, within NASA, we've got every stripe of politics represented without question. Yeah. And seeing that really it's the one thing that it seems like people who agree on nothing else can get excited about and passionate about and can break bread over with each other and say like, hey, we don't agree about anything else, but hey, this lander development looks like it's really on track. And I think I've got a good idea who the crew are going to be that we're going to put back on the moon. And isn't that exciting? And how can I make that better? And how can I be a part of that? So my hope is that, that that's certainly the feeling within NASA. My hope is that we can continue to spread that to, uh, to our countrymen. <laughs> if when we go back, like the most perfect thing I can imagine, right, would be we're going back to the moon, that mission has taken place, and regardless of what else is going on in the world and going on in the country, if when we land back there, every person from every political stripe is equally glued to the television and watching that happen together. I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think that's something that um, I'm hopeful will happen. Absolutely. I've always personally been of the mind that if we can make the world smaller, both theoretically and physically, then it works to bring everybody on the planet closer together. The smaller we are as a unit, the more like, close-knit we will be as a global society. And I think what you guys at NASA and SpaceX are doing, the sense of just adventure and hope and optimism that you guys fuel every single day with the work you do is just incredible. It's amazing. So thank you personally for that, man. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I've got one more question, if you're willing. Uh, it's another listener question. This one came to us from Steve via the Gmail account at SpaceCastlePodcast at gmail.com. The question is, if you personally could travel through time and witness one event, you can travel forwards or backwards, oh. witness one event in space exploration history, what would you like to see personally? travel forwards oh man forwards or backwards yeah yeah that's 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 hard um (laughs) the forward forward makes it very very hard all right 
I'll, I'll give you both answers. Let's see. If I could travel forward, right, I'll, I'll caveat with being like, I don't know if it's actually going to occur um, as a part of human space exploration or it's going to occur with our radio astronomy colleagues, right? But um, being present for the day where it's not like the wow signal where, well, maybe it was a signal, maybe it wasn't, we, we don't really know. Being present whenever definitively we can say, no kidding, we're not alone in terms of being intelligent beings in the universe. Totally, yeah. Whenever that happens, I, I want to be in that room, right? Um, that's if I, if I can go anywhere, anytime, I, I want to be there when we know that for sure. Going backwards, man, I would love to. It's, it's so strange how your answer kind of changes over time. I think you want to be wherever you could make the most difference. You know, we've seen Apollo 13 been fortunate enough to talk to Gene Kranz and Fred Hayes and, and a number of those folks. Oh, that's awesome. Chuck Berry, the flight surgeon at the time, who gets a bad rap in that movie, by the way. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, he was an incredible human being uh, as well. And, and, you know, um, spoke to many surgeons here, knew him and, and uh, you know, learned from him. I think when you look at Apollo 13 um, or you look in the run up to Apollo 1 and you say, hey, could, you know, could I have made a difference in any one of those places? That's where you'd want to be. You'd want to be wherever you could make a difference. And so I'll say, you know, put, put us, whoever's traveling back, put us about a month prior to Apollo 1 and, and let's see if we could change the trajectory of that. Yeah. Oh, dude, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Almost like revisionist history. That'd be super rad. Dude, James, thank you so much for joining me this week. This is just a fantastic conversation. One I've been wanting to have for a long time, and I'm so glad that I was able to find the time and you were able to find the time and jump on and do this. Is there anything you want to throw out there as just closing thoughts or something you want to share with listeners? Anything that might even be not related to what we've been speaking about today that you're super hyped on that you want to share with people or just closing thoughts on space exploration and travel in general? Oh, man, I, I would say that when I you know, look back at my trajectory to get here, I'm like, man, I could have started like 10 years earlier. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I say that where I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm pushing 39. And uh, when I go out to SpaceX, I'm one of the oldest dudes there. So I say that by way of saying, if you're at all interested in this stuff and, um, you know, if you're in high school and you're at all like, man, I think, you know, space in general, you don't even need to know if you're like interested in the robotic side or the astronomy side or the human space flight side. If this stuff jazzes you up at all, I cannot think of a better way to spend your whatever career you get. Um, than working in this stuff. It's just freaking fun every day, regardless of what piece of it you have. I, I do tend to, you know, look at this like, it sounds fatalistic, but I look at it like, hey, we're all going to get to work for like, you know, 30 odd years or so, and we're all going to die at some point. There's going to come some day where you're looking back on how you spent your time and you're going to be like, well, okay, this is what I did like with, you know, my friends and my loved ones. And this is all the fun memories I have from that. And then, oh, here's the stuff I did that I got paid for, right? And to me, um, the ability to look at that whole chunk of your life, like here's the stuff that people paid me money to do and say like, wow, I, you know, move the needle or I, you know, just a little bit on, you know, getting people off of this planet into, into you know, other worlds or, you know, whatever, whatever. I discovered something new. I contributed to something. I built the, I built the widget that's sitting in the James Webb telescope right now. That's letting us learn about how, you know, our universe evolved over time to have any, even a small piece of any of that is, uh, like I said, we're all, we're all going to have to say goodbye someday. I think 
if you spend any of your time working in any of those fields, if it excites you, then um, there's no reason to wait. You can get into this stuff real early. Dude, it is always inspirational talking to you. Like I said, you're one of my favorite people. We have the exact same birthday. People don't know. Yes, we We're do. both born on December 3rd, 1983. Uh, every year we send each other a birthday gift. Dude, don't worry about it. This is my birthday gift this year. Thank you so much, man. Oh, you got it. I know you're super busy. You've got a ton going on. Uh, I just want to thank you again for taking the time out, man. And I won't take up any more of your time. I know you've got people to land on the moon and all kinds of <laughs> wild stuff to do. So, dude, thank you so much again. Uh, hopefully, we can have you on again some point. But uh, thank you so much, man. Seriously. No, th thanks a lot. Uh, thanks for the conversation. Like I said, I could talk about space stuff all day. and uh, I could listen to you talk about space stuff all day. Here's the fun thing. Sp spend this time talking to you. Now I'm going to go talk about some more space stuff on another meeting. And uh, it probably won't be quite as fun as talking to you, but um, <laughs> I can just keep doing the same thing. So, Will there be more or less profanity in that meeting? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You never know. It depends on the topic. Yeah, I know NASA has to listen to this. So I was really, really good. And I held back a couple of F words and S words. You were amazing. You were amazing. You kidding me? No, it was great. I know. I know. <laughs> Dude, I love you, man. Uh, take care. We'll talk to you again soon. Have a great rest of your day, my friend. Hey, thanks so much, DT. Appreciate it. And that's going to do it for this episode of Space Castle. As always, it is your clubhouse for all things nerdy. My name is DT. On behalf of Dr. James Paterini from NASA, I want to thank you guys for listening and listening every week. We really appreciate you. Just by doing so, you are supporting the show and helping it grow, and I love you for it. If you're able to take it a step further, you can become part of the crew at patreon.com slash spacecastlepod. And as always, you can reach me on social media at SpaceCastlePod on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk about how excited we are to go back to the moon. Whatever you got, send it my way. If you want to send me a long-form email, you can do so at spacecastlepodcast at gmail.com. I will read it. I will respond. I want to hear your feedback. Let's keep this vibe going, man. In the meantime, thank you guys so much for listening. I love you. Take care and be good.